0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 241, Dr. Bo Branson on The Monarchy of the Father, Part 3. In this episode, Dr. Branson discusses the claim that fatherhood is essential to the one God, that is, to the Father. He then argues that the historical story I tell about the development of Christian theology is mistaken. He claims that what he calls a monarchical model of the Trinity prevailed in Eastern sources well into the early Middle Ages, if not far beyond that. Remember, what he calls a monarchical model of the Trinity is a view where the one God just is the Father. That is, God and the Father are numerically identical. And he contrasts that with what he calls egalitarian or symmetrical understandings of the Trinity. And just to remind you of how he defined those, back in part one of his presentation, he said that an egalitarian or a symmetrical model is one in which the persons have an equal claim to being called God in any sense of the term. And he adds that any quality or relation that would be relevant to whether that person can be called God in any sense is shared by the other two persons equally. Here then again, Dr. Bo Branson.
1: Let's also take a look at what actually happened when Arius, the first Arian that really sparked the whole controversy off, was actually deposed. I think you'll be surprised at what you see. Arius is famous for his claim that there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, there was a time when the sun didn't exist. And that's what he actually advertised as his view. He went around saying there was a time when the sun was not. And so today, Arianism, the heresy that's named after him, is generally thought of as primarily a Christological heresy, right? Because it says that the sun didn't always exist, and so... The sun is not fully divine because he's a creature. And when you talk to people about Arianism, and they'll say, well, yeah, it's this Christological, I mean, it's a triadological heresy, it's a heresy about the Trinity, but it's, primarily they think of it as a Christological heresy. It's, it's saying that the sun didn't always exist, and that's the problem. Okay, but here's the thing. Notice what actually happened when Arius was eventually formally deposed by his patriarch, and by his fellow priests and deacons in Alexandria, in a council of presbyters. Alexander is the Pope of Alexandria, Egypt, and he gets together a council, uh, about 80 presbyters and deacons, and they debate it, and they end up naming Arius and five other presbyters, uh, along with their six total deacons, and then there were two bishops that went along with them too, and they name them. Here's what I want you to, to look at. You would think that the first thing they would say is, hey, you know, Arius says there was a time when the sun was not. He says there was a time when the sun didn't exist, and that's a big heresy. Oh, he says the sun was a creature. Oh, that's the heresy. And they do list that, but it's not the first thing that they list. The first thing that they say is, the novelties that they have invented and put forth contrary to the scriptures are these, that God was not always a father, but there was a time not just a time when the Son did not exist. There was a time when God was not a father. That's the number one thing that they list. In other words, they saw Arianism not just as a Christological heresy, but as a patrological heresy. It's a heresy about God the Father because it says God hasn't always been a father. God's not essentially a father. That's not part of who and what God is. Notice that on Gregory's view, The property of being the Father is what individuates God. It's what makes God the one God as opposed to the Son or the Spirit. It's it's his unique identifying quality. We would say in analytic philosophy today, we would say it's it's part of God's individual essence or his trans-world identity conditions, to give you the technical term. Arianism, and it's the same with biblical Unitarianism, says that God was not always a father. So fatherhood is not essential to God. God happens to have become a father, but he wasn't always the father. Now, the interesting thing to note here is that Arius himself didn't advertise his view as the view that denies that God is eternally the father. That's not what he advertised about it. It, That's just a consequence of his view. And it's a consequence that he seems to have basically admitted when he was questioned about it. So they question him about his theology, and he seems to have just said, well, yeah, okay, you're right, God hasn't always all been the father then. But despite the fact that that's not really what he emphasized, it is what Alexander emphasized. So the first thing that Arius would say about his theology would be, hey, there's this time when the Son didn't exist. God the Father existed before God the Son existed. That's what Arius would have said. But the first thing Alexander says is, hey, you've got this view where God hasn't always been a father. That's the problem. So that shows what Alexander's motivations were. That that shows what all of this council's deepest theological motivations were. What motivated the Orthodox was not, oh, we're really concerned about saying that the son is equal to the father. What motivated them is, is, hey, God is the father. He didn't become the father. That's what he is, is the father, Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about what's the logic here, because some of you, I'm sure, if you're again, if you're a Western Christian, if you grew up in an egalitarian sort of environment, your head is probably spinning right now, and you're thinking, oh, "Wait a minute, I don't understand. You know, how how can they say this? Isn't this, uh, you know, it, it's not Trinitarianism? I don't understand. Why would this be their deepest motivation? I mean, I don't, you know, that just seems the opposite of everything you'd expect. So I'm going to go through and just kind of reconstruct it for you." Here's how I think the logic works. Premise one, God is a necessary being, or an eternal being, both, presumably. So he exists at all times and in all possible worlds. Now, it's just analytic. In other words, it's true by definition. So therefore, it's necessarily and eternally true that if X counts as a father, then there's a distinct Y, such that Y is the son of X, right? So, in other words, you, you can't be a father if you don't have a son or a daughter, an offspring. This is unfortunately, you know, it's it's gendered language, and maybe we'd rather be gender neutral, but the gender's not the issue, right? It's it's the parent offspring relationship. So therefore, if, like Gregory Nyssa says, fatherhood is essential to God, and by the way, Athanasius says the same thing in his orations against the Arians. Athanasius is just constantly coming back to how the one God is the father. If fatherhood is essential to God, which just means that God is a father, has the property of being a father at every time and in every possible world at which he exists, God can't exist without being the father, then it's necessarily and eternally true that there's a son, so that just follows logic. You may not be up on your modal logic or whatever, but that's the way it works. So th- think about it in terms of possible worlds is how we, we typically think about things. So the idea is God exists in every possible world. So suppose that in every possible world in which God exists, he has the property of being a father. That's what it means to say it's essential to him. Well, that means that he's a father in every possible world. Again, it's just analytic that If you're a father, then there has to be a distinct son. Now, what Gregory is going to say against Eunomius is that fatherhood, in fact, is essential to God. I'm going to call that the eternal or the essential fatherhood premise, or the essentiality of fatherhood. I'll, I'll refer to it in some way, such as that. That's kind of the key premise. And if that's true, then that means that the son is also a necessary and eternal being. He has to exist at all times and in all possible worlds, assuming there's not different suns in different possible worlds. But of course, if you say that what the sun's trans-world identity conditions are, are being of the sun or being begotten, uh, so that's the sun's hypostatic property, as we'd say, then that does hold true. So there you go, right? I mean, that's the kind of the basics of it is if God exists at all times in all worlds And if he is a father at all times in all worlds Then he has to have a son at all times and in all possible worlds Now let's just add a few other premises in here We can say creatures are all contingent And they're not eternal, right? Because they're ex nihilo beings They came into existence out of nothing So they haven't existed at all times And also, God didn't have to create. And God didn't have to create you. He didn't have to create me. He didn't have to create any creatures. There's no necessity in God's creating. So for any given creature, there's at least a possible world where that creature doesn't exist. Well, it follows the Son of God's not a creature because there's not any possible worlds where He fails to exist. If you're a creature, there's possible worlds we fail to exist. There's not possible worlds where the Son fails to exist. So it follows from... 5 and 6, that the Son of God is not a creature. And again, that just follows from the, the very common, typical Christian understanding that creatures are contingent and not eternal. Now we can add this in. If X is not divine, then X is created. So there are no beings floating around out there that aren't divine, but also aren't created, right? God created everything outside of himself. By modus tollens, the Son of God is divine, right? So if you say, uh, if X is not divine, then X is a creature. Well, the Son of God is not a creature, so the Son of God is not, not divine. Well, that's the same thing, saying the Son is divine. That's just a straightforward modus tollens argument. Again, just on the basis of the understanding that creatures are contingent, not eternal, and that non divine things have to be created follows that the Son of God is divine. He's not a creature. Uh, he is divine. Those are pretty hard to deny, right? It's difficult to deny that creatures are contingent. That creatures are not eternal. It's difficult to not deny that if you're non divine, then you have to be created. So it looks like the only way to consistently maintain Arianism and the only way to consistently maintain biblical Unitarianism is actually to deny that God is essentially or even eternally a father. Now that causes a problem for Tuggy. Okay, so remember Tuggy's definitions here. There's one God who's numerically identical to the one Jesus called Father, and that's eternally the case. But arguably that actually requires monarchical Trinitarianism. So I'm not going to argue against it. I'm not going to deny that. I'll be great, okay. You know, yeah, there is one God, and he is numerically identical to the one Jesus called Father. That is eternally the case. So God is eternally the Father. Uh, so he's eternally a Father. You might think there's some ways of getting around that. You might initially think, well, but, you know, maybe they're identical, but it just God hasn't always been the Father. Well, that's a little trickier than you might think. But what I want you to understand right now is that that's the logic that's going on. The logic is not that Arians believe that God's the Father and the Orthodox didn't. The logic of it is that Arians say God has not always been the Father, and so he could be sort of identical, He's kind of contingently identical, but he's not always identical. He kind of is and he kind of isn't. Sort of like what you hear egalitarian Trinitarian say so it kind of is, kind of isn't. Well, Orthodox said, No, God just is the Father. Always is, always has been, it's necessary, it's essential. That is just the nature of things. That's that's who and what God is is the Father. You see this in all the church fathers, so I'm just gonna give you a couple of things here. So Saint Hilary of Poitiers in his De Trinitate, and he's talking about Arianism, arguing against Arianism, and he says this. He says look, Either he was not always a father, unless there was always also a son, or if he was always a father, then there was always also a son. Uh, Since whatever period of time is denied to the son to make his sonship non-eternal, just so much the father lacks of having been always a father. In other words, if you think that Jesus came into existence in 1 AD, and so the Son of God came into existence in 1 AD, then... For all that time BC, that there was no son, there was no father. or in any case, God didn't count as a father, right? He hasn't always been a father. So that although he has always he was always God, nevertheless, he cannot have been also a father for the same infinity during which he is God. So that is just Hilary Poitier's way of saying the same thing. It's interesting because Hilary Poitier didn't really have, I think, a, a whole ton of contact with uh, a lot of the Easterners. Uh, in a way, he kind of came at a lot of the same ideas and things, but uh, in, in some cases kind of independently. But anyway, he gives the same, essentially the same argument. He just says, hey, if you're going to say there wasn't always a son, then for the, that same period of time that there was not a son, there was a god but no father.
0: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson discusses this same idea in the work of Gregory of Nazianzus.
1: Tuggy especially, he will try to interpret Gregory Nazianzen as being an egalitarian. He read this book, uh, 381 A.D., by Charles Freeman, and I think he got kind of taken in by it. Most historians of that time period don't. Freeman just got, got enormously criticized by people who actually specialize in that area of history. But Tuggy likes to refer to him a lot. And whatever. I think he really buys this view that there was a big shift in the world, you know, in 381 AD. And Tuggy wants that to sort of be when the monarchy, or as he calls it, Unitarianism, kind of went away. And so he has to do a lot of weird textual gymnastics, sort of, to say that the first Ecumenical Council's creed was Unitarian, but the second Ecumenical Council's creed was Trinitarian, by which he means egalitarian even though they essentially say exactly the same thing. So it's a very kind of circular, weird, arbitrary thing. So the first creed he'll say is Unitarian because it says we believe in one God, the Father. But actually, the second creed says that too, and all the ecumenical councils say that. And then he'll say that the second ecumenical council is egalitarian because it says the Father and the Son are homoousius. But of course, the first creed says that too. So that made... In fact, the first creed says even more. Uh, the, the second council actually deleted some of that language. So if anything, the second creed would be less egalitarian, so it just doesn't make any sense. It's all a kind of very weird, backward sort of view. He, he wants it to be 381 AD, that's kind of when everything changed. And so because of that, he also wants to imagine that Gregory Nazianzen wasn't egalitarian, which we already saw that Gregory Nyssa wasn't. And Gregory Nyssa is the one who gets given the authority to decide who's who's Trinitarian and who's not. But Gregory Nazianzen was the president of the Second Ecumenical Council for a while, and so Tuggy likes to read him as an egalitarian. So I just want to go through this and say, you know, t- explain this one to me, how, in, in just the same way, I don't know how you would explain Gregory of Nyssa being an egalitarian. I don't know how you're going to explain Gregory Nazianzen here. Now, this is Oration 25, which is... Let me give you a little bit of the context. A lot of the times when people look for Gregory Nazianzen's Trinitarian theology, they only read the five theological orations, which were given under very specific circumstances, which would make them such that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find... An exact sort of exposition of his view. So, what happened was while Gregory Nazianzen was the Patriarch of Constantinople and the President of the Second Ecumenical Council, he gave these sermons in the Hagia Sophia, the main church in Constantinople. There's this debate going on with the Arians. <laughs> and there's a lot of people in his church that were Arians. Because so, think about it, at this point in time, there wasn't such a sharp division. For You know, Arianism was a heresy that came from within the church. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, the Gnostics or something, they just kind of came from outside uh, in some way. Well, that's what I say about the Gnostics anyway. B- but point being, I mean, it came from within the church. There were Arian bishops, there were Arian priests, and and, you know, they had their whole hierarchy and they, aside from Eunomius they worshiped in the same way that orthodox Christians worshiped they said all the same prayers they baptized with the same formula and so forth you know everything was kind of one group so he has all these parishioners who are Arians and he's trying to kind of convince them to become trinitarians monarchical trinitarians i would say but Gregory Nazianzen the way that he sort of thought about things was that modalists kind of overly, they were overly devoted to the Son. Because they're so devoted to the Son, they didn't want to see the Father as the one source and the Son as something that is caused, even though not created, but timelessly caused by the Father. So they didn't want to do that because they're, in his view, overly devoted to the Son. The Arians, he says, they're overly devoted to the Father. They want the father to not only be the monarch, right? The one or he, but they want the father to have the divine nature. And he's the only one who has the divine nature. And the son doesn't even share the same sort of nature. So on, on their view, the father and the son can't even be the same species of thing because the father is just so much greater than the son. So here's the thing. If you're reading orations and and homilies that are directed against Arians, you wouldn't expect Gregory Nazianzen to be harping on about the monarchy. You wouldn't expect him to be talking about how the father is greater than the son because Arians already believe that. That's not what separates Arians from Orthodox. So he's preaching to the choir. What he wants wants to do is, is convert some people. So you really wouldn't expect in the five theological orations, which again he delivered in Constantinople at the Hagia Sophia during the middle of this controversy, you wouldn't expect him to talk about the monarchy of the Father and to talk about the sense in which the Father is greater than the Son and, and this sort of thing. You would expect him to just focus on the equality of the divine nature, the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all the same, the same species, the same nature of things, same kind of thing. That's what you do find. You do find him saying that, right? But the point is, you you wouldn't expect that you're going to find all of his theology there, right? He's only going to be talking about that that one aspect. Now, in Oration 25, what's happening is he's gotten fed up, and there's all these ecclesiastical political issues and whatever, and he steps down as the president of of the Second Ecumenical Council. And in fact, he's leaving town. He's getting out of here. And this oration he gives... And he's exhorting kind of some of his the people who are going to come after him and, and kind of step into his shoes. And he's exhorting them about kind of how to understand theology and how to preach theology. And so here he's talking to people that he doesn't perceive as having a difference of opinion with him. He's talking to other people. That he says, these, these guys are Orthodox Christians, and I just want to talk about my theology. So here we would expect him to give a kind of balanced View of his whole theology as a whole, not just kind of a part of it. Here's what we find. He says, "Define our piety by teaching the knowledge of one God, unbegotten, the Father." Okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe that's just traditional language. You know, maybe maybe it really doesn't mean it. And one begotten Lord, his Son. Oh, you know, okay, just 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 traditional terminology. You know, he he doesn't really mean that the one. God is the unbegotten the Father, you know what I mean because I mean, he, he's going to say that the you know the Lord is also God, and right well, look what he actually says about the one begotten Lord, the Son of God. He says that this for the second person of the Trinity is referred to as God when he is mentioned separately, and notice that he doesn't use the definite article here by the way, uh, so I've mentioned that before a little a, a few times. In Greek, if you use o, theos, if the, the definite article, that means that you're using it like a name. You're referring to an individual, right? If you use theos or theon in this case without an article, then it's a predicate. It's a predicate nominative. So it's not referring to an individual. It's just predicating divinity. But even here, notice what he says. The one begotten Lord, the Son of God, can be called Theos, when he is mentioned separately, or literally says kathelton, by himself, but as Lord when he is named together with the Father, right? meaning only as Lord when he is named together with the Father. Why is that? Well, he says, the first on account of the divine nature, the second on account of the monarchy. So in other words, the reason we can predicate Theos is of the second person of the Trinity, yeah, that's because he has the same nature. The nature allows us to use the word God as a predicate. In other words, he's divine, right, because he has the divine nature. But we call him Lord when he's mentioned together with the Father. Why is that? Well, because of the monarchy. In other words, for Gregory, once you've got two beings in the picture here, the Father and the Son, Then if you call them both God, well, that's confusing, and that looks like there's two gods. So the name God goes with the father, because the father is the monarch. Here's an analogy that a lot of church fathers use. You know, suppose you have a king, and the king is, of course, the source of his son, the prince. And the king has power. He's the monarch. But, of course, when the king's away, he Gives his authority to the Son. And then you obey the Son, the Prince, just as you would obey the Father. You might even refer to the Prince as the King, you know, as long as his Father's gone. But when the Father's back, then he's the King. If you're an egalitarian Trinitarian and you think that the one God just sort of is the shared divine nature, well, then it looks like the Father and the Son should have an equal claim to being called God. It, why would it be that when the father's in the picture, you don't call the son God anymore? I mean, they, they still both have the same divine nature, right? So if you're an egalitarian, I think you'd say, well, the father's called God and the son's called God too, right? But what Gregory says is, well, we can refer to the son as God as long as we're not talking about the father. But when the father comes back in the picture, then we got to go back to talking about God. Um, talking about the sun just as the Lord. And that's just a tiny little smidgen. Richard Cross, who was my dissertation advisor, and I, I love him to death, I think he's brilliant, and I, th- I love his stuff, but I think he's wrong about this. He has a paper where he tried to kind of argue that Gregory Nesiansen's view of monarchy was uh, more sort of egalitarian. Christopher Bealey, who is a great theologian, wrote a paper in response to, to Richard where he talks about the monarchy in Gregory Nazianzen and, and goes through Oration 25, which I just mentioned. That's where I got that. Uh, I have to give him credit for that reference. But anyway, he goes through a, a lot of stuff in detail and says, no, Gregory Nazianzen you know, believes in the monarchy of the Father, just like the other Cappadocians and Athanasius and everybody else. Chris Bealy also has an entire book called, In Thy Light Shall We See Light. Gregory of on the Trinity and the knowledge of God. Large swaths of the book are, are taken up with talking about the monarchy. So if you're interested in that, I would say, you know, go read some Chris Bealey And again, there's numerous passages I could give you, and I'm putting them together into a, a paper. They may go into a paper. I don't know if they'll all fit into a paper even, but there's numerous passages you can get from, from Basil, from Athanasius, from both the Gregory's, um, Cyril of Jerusalem. I mean, there's lots of of church fathers from the 4th century who all affirm the monarchy of the Father in just numerous, 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 numerous passages.
0: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson discusses some passages from somewhat later writers.
1: just going to go on there a little bit to talk about some of the later fathers. This isn't something that sort of skipped around. I mean, it it's a continuous tradition. We already looked at Photius, um, so I'm going to look at, first of all, St. John of Damascus. Orthodox Christians don't really think that there's an end to you know, the age of the church fathers, but Western Christians typically conventionally assign St. John of Damascus as the last of the church fathers. So I'm going to just go to him and show you some interesting passages here. In St. John of Damascus' exact exposition of the Orthodox faith, which by the way, uh, one time Dale mentioned this to me on his Facebook group, I and mean, he just kind of said something about I've never really seen you know these views worked out very well or something. If you really want to uh, get a pretty good summary idea of of the church Father's thoughts on everything, you, you can't really do much better than than St. John of Damascus' exact exposition of the Orthodox faith, you know unless you're just willing to dig into the patristic texts themselves. Um, if if you want a good uh, kind of summary and handbook, and very precise definitions and so forth, i say that's where to go. Uh, You might need to know a little Greek, I guess, to do it, um, and you might need to know a little bit about Greek philosophy, and and especially Aristotle and so forth, but that just comes with the territory. But anyway, even if you don't, you can get quite a bit out of them. This is Book 1, Chapter 8. What happens is people are egalitarian Trinitarians, and they go and they read the Church Fathers, And they just read that into the Church Fathers because there's passages that are kind of ambiguous or they could be interpreted as egalitarian if you kind of didn't know any better, if you don't really pay attention to it too much. Uh, And people just kind of read past things that are actually monarchical and don't notice it. So here's this long passage where he says, We believe then in one God, one beginning, having no beginning, uncreated, unbegotten, imperishable, immortal, Everlasting, infinite, uncircumcised, boundless, of infinite power, simple, uncompounded, incorporeal, blah, 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 blah. And he just goes on and on and on and on with all this stuff about the one God. And then down here at the very end, he says, We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We're into, also we have been baptized. Right? So egalitarians read that and go, oh, okay, yeah. You know, St. John of Damascus, I mean, he he was an egalitarian, right? He we believe in this one God who's you know, endless and uncreated and blah, blah, blah. You know, and then here at the end, he says, we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, you know, it just must be, same thing. I mean, the the one God must be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, look a little closer. We believe in one God. Among all the other stuff that he says, one beginning, having no beginning, uncreated, imperishable, blah, 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 blah. He says, unbegotten. We believe then in one God, One beginning having no beginning. In Greek, that's archin anarchon. One arche without an arche. And he's unbegotten. That's the father, my friends. St. John of Damascus is very careful with his language. And not only is he just generally careful with his language, he goes into detail on this word, Aganaton. He explains, and then there's there's a distinction in Greek between agenton with one new, one in versus two, right? So one means kind of ungenerated, right? Didn't come into existence, but it basically means not ex nihilo, right? And the other one means unbegotten. And that's a big important point. And and he goes into detail in that. So it's not like he doesn't He's not making the distinction. He's making the distinction. He knows this distinction. He insists on the distinction, and he's very careful about his distinctions. And in this passage, he does not say that we believe in one God who's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together at the same time, and, and they're kind of all the same, but they're not, and they are, but they're not, and this and that and the other. And this this thing with the arche anarchos right, the, the archa without archae. St. John of Damascus never says that about the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's very insistent that only the Father is the archie without an archie, right? He's the source without source. And the Son and the Spirit both have sources. What he clearly says in this first part is we believe in one God, and and that one God is clearly the Father. He's the one archie without archie, the source without source. So for John... There's one God because there's a single arche without arche. This word "meon" too, one beginning. "Meon" a single, right? So we believe in one God, a single source without source, a single arche Anarchon, and it's unbegotten. That's that's the Father. Now it's also important to note that there are these passages in John where they're often read by egalitarians in an egalitarian way, but they're actually ambiguous. So if you notice. Where he said, we believe in in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was in the next sentence. And of course, you know, there were no paragraph breaks in antiquity. So who knows if he intended to start an, a new paragraph, right? So we believe in one God, the Father. And then the next paragraph, we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, do monarchical Trinitarians believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah, we do. Of course, we believe there's a Father, there's a Son, and there's a Holy Spirit. I mean, that's true. And we, we believe that they're all divine. But he never says that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one God. He says the one God is the source without source, who's unbegotten, the Father. So again, it's just carelessness in reading this, this stuff that makes people think, oh, well, all the church fathers, they're egalitarians, just like my Roman Catholic priest down the hall or the street or my you know Southern Baptist pastor or whatever. They're, they're just like us. Well, read a little more closely some of these passages that are kind of ambiguous they actually get disambiguated elsewhere but again people just read past it they don't notice it so for example john says again we speak of the three subsistences as hypostases as being in each other so that we may not introduce a crowd and multitude of gods and a lot of people today they love this talk about perichoresis you know the how the persons of the trinity all kind of interpenetrate one another somehow You know, and that's true later fathers uh, start talking about that. Originally, that was actually a Christological issue. It kind of gets turned into a triadological issue later. But anyway, so yeah, John talks about this, but look at what he says. We speak of the three subsistences as being in each other, so we may not introduce a crowd of multitude of gods. Owing to the three subsistences, there is no compoundness or confusion, while owing to their having the same essence and dwelling in one another and being the same in will and energy and power and authority and movement, so to speak, we recognize the indivisibility and the unity of God. So people read that and they say, oh, there you go. There's his his egalitarian, trinitarian streak coming out. So he's got the, these three persons, but they all t- together are one God because they all interpenetrate each other and this and that. Well, okay, yeah, I mean, in a sense, yeah, sure, he's going to say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all, in some sense, one God. But look at what the way that he puts it. I don't think that the way that he puts it is the way that you would expect if you're an egalitarian Trinitarian, the, the sort that we have today in the West. What John says is, truly, God and his word and his spirit are one God. Well, hold on. I thought the one God, that's supposed to be the Trinity. So it should just be, you know, the Father and His Word and His Spirit are one God. You know, the one God is all oh, well that's not what John says. That's not how he puts it. He says there's the one God, Iskar ontos theos. So for truly there's the one God, right? It's otheos, Keologos, Ketopnevma of two, Right? So there's God, O Theos, there's God and His Logos and His Spirit. They are the one God. But O Theos is referring to the Father, right? God is the Father. All of these together count as one God. So that's where he's, it's quantified. There's Is Theos, right? One God. They count as one God. But who counts as one God? Well, it's God and the, and the Word and the Spirit. So it's a little bit odd. We have to ask what he means here then now. I mean, is, is the one God, is it that the Father includes himself? I'm going to talk about that idea later. Or are you know, these kind of two different senses of God? So there's one God in the sense that the God in the primary sense, along with his word and spirit, count as one God in this predicative sort of sense, in a predicate kind of type of sense. Who knows? I mean, that's something that I think bears further study, but notice just that that's not the way you would expect to hear things from an egalitarian. He's clearly still reserving the word God for the Father. But again, if you didn't, you know, if you just read that first part, you kind of passed over the second part, you wouldn't think about that. Now, the interesting thing here is John is writing in around 700 to 750 AD, depending on, I'm not sure exactly when the The exact exposition was written, but just given the timeline of his life, it would be in that area. And so that's already 400-plus years after Tuggy's kind of favorite date of 381 A.D. So I mentioned that before, that Tuggy really likes this idea that 381, you know, the second ecumenical council, that's when everything really kind of went to crap. Well, here we are 400 years later, and John of Damascus at least certainly looks... In certain passages like he's still a monarchical Trinitarian. I think that gets even more clear in other Christian authors that were writing very soon after the rise of Islam. so John of Damascus actually worked for a, an Islamic caliph for a while and wrote some apologetic stuff against Islam and, and whatever but he still wrote in Greek because that was still kind of the you know the language of education and philosophy and so forth at the time. I'm going to mention a couple of authors who write in Arabic, so after Arabic kind of becomes more the, the lingua franca. We're already 400 years past when Tuggy thinks the monarchy, or what he calls Unitarianism, kind of you know gone to pot, but it's still there and I think it actually gets even more clear uh, in these other Arabic writers. The same kind of language about God and his logos and his spirit are one God, we see that in this unknown author. Uh, there's a, a treatise called, it, it's an unfortunate title. It, the title was given to it not by the author, there is no title on the actual manuscript, but by this British woman who discovered it, and so she titled it On the Triune Nature of God, but it actually doesn't have that uh, any title, and it never mentions a triune God anywhere in the text, and so it's kind of an unfortunate title for it. Um, But it's this early apologetic work against Islam, um, written in Arabic, maybe 750 to 800 AD. Again, it doesn't say anything about a triune God. I give the link to it. You can get a, a copy of it online. And he says things like this, that men may know that the angels adore God and his word and his spirit, one God and one Lord. So, you know, yeah, he's trying to say that these somehow count as one God and one Lord, but he's still calling the Father just God. Again, it would be interesting to kind of try to figure out, well, exactly what is the view here? And that's something that I think calls for further study. But clearly he still thinks of the one God as the Father. So again, when you use the word God as a name, it refers to the Father. He's just saying in a predicative sense, somehow these things all count as one divine being. And he says again, God and his word and his spirit are one God and one Lord. So again, God used as a name still refers to the Father. They're trying to say that there's this sort of predicative use of, of God or, or whatever the view is, uh, where they count as one God, but he still thinks of the one God as Father. Abu Kura, Theodore Kura, probably would have been written somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 AD. Um, and he says this, I think, I didn't put the reference down, but I think it's uh, his opuscule. 42 on the Trinity. This says, God and his word and his spirit are not said to be other than one God, even as a person and that person's word and spirit are not said to be other than one person. So here again, he's going to use the word God as a name to refer to the Father. And he's just going to say, look, God, along with his word and his spirit, doesn't count as more than one God just like a person, a man, and the man's word and spirit don't count as more than one man. A little bit more from Theodore Abukura, And interestingly, a funny thing about this is this is actually one of Samuel Clark's citations. I'm going to talk about Samuel Clark a little bit later. Um, This is actually one of the places where he gets here, what he appeals to when he talks about the fact that the word God refers to the Father. Uh, Abukura says, Some names are common to the Holy Trinity, and are predicated of the divine essence as a whole. Examples include God, Lord, good, just, wise, powerful, king, master, provider, savior, holy, uh, and as many other names as are applied to the divine nature as a whole, and not just to one of its hypotheses. Okay, so you might look at that and say, oh, well, gosh, you know, he's saying that God and Lord, you know, go with the divine nature as a whole, and so, you know, maybe he's kind of, maybe this is where things start shifting to to an egalitarian sort of reading or something says other names are individual or hypostatic. Examples include Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. As for those names that are common and are predicated of the divine essence, though, he says God, though, is taken from the Father and is his in a special degree, since he is the cause of the Son and the Spirit, and they exist with reference to him. Accordingly, when the apostles and this is what Samuel Clark cites a part of this I'm going to I'm citing uh, a bigger uh, section of it he says accordingly when the apostles in just about the whole of divine scripture use the word god without qualification or specification uh, and as a whole without the definite article and without mention of any hypostatic property they're referring to the Father. right so and and Samuel Clark quotes that so he just says look yeah, God is this thing that kind of attaches to the essence, the name attached to the essence, but then he immediately turns around and says, but it really, in a special way, belongs to the Father, and that is why if you don't have any further qualifications and you use the definite article and it's just kind of without qualification and so forth, then that always refers to the Father. He gives the sorts of examples that biblical Unitarians do, you know, when St. Paul talks about, you know, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, the love of God, the Father, and the, and the, you know, grace of the Holy Spirit. So there's all these cases in the New Testament of just the use of the word God, and then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's obvious from the context that just the reference to God refers to the Father. And that's what Abu Kura points out here, too. And, and the point is, he wants to point out that the Bible is monarchical, because, frankly, because he is. And he says again, same thing in the Creed. I believe in one God, that is the Father. Uh, And he says the Father is called God in a special degree because he is the unity of the Trinity. This is because the Son and the Spirit are said to belong to the Father, while the Father is not said to belong to them. To the Father they are thus referred, not the Father to them. In other words, the Son is the Son of God. The Spirit is the Spirit of God. They, in a sense, belong to God, but God doesn't belong to them. They belong to him. So that's clearly not egalitarian. It's not symmetrical. He clearly has this monarchical sort of view that the father occupies a special place in the Trinity. And so the word God, especially in a special degree, applies to him. And so when it's used with the article and and without any kind of qualifications, it just refers to the Father. But then we kind of take it from the Father and apply it in a secondary sort of way to the Son and the Holy Spirit in virtue of the fact that they have the same essence. So that's kind of his view overall. He then says, if you find God applied to the Son, this is because these names, in that they refer to the nature are sometimes also predicated of the hypostases. I think he means here the other hypostases. And here's an interesting thing. As we said before, you know, yeah, there are a couple times in the New Testament where God with the definite article, Otheos, is predicated of the Son. And Abu Kura has an interesting comment here. He says, accordingly, in predication, because of his nature, the Son is also called God, but usually without the article. Unless... "...the preceding verse or expression has been about him, in which case the article becomes a reference to him, as to an aforementioned person." Now, if you know Greek, you know what he's talking about. The articles are also relative pronouns in Greek. What Abu Kura is saying is the times when you find Theos, God, with the article predicated of the Son... He's saying that's not actually God with the article being said of the Son. So he's not actually being named God. He says what's actually happening is grammatically these are contexts where the Son of God has just been talked about and this article is actually a relative pronoun that refers back to the Son. So he gives the example of Romans 9:5, from them according to the flesh is Christ, from the Jews according to the flesh is Christ. He who is God overall, o epipanton theos. And what Abu Hurra says is that's not actually naming Christ the God above all, that's actually using it still as a predicate. And what that O is, is it's the word he or who, who is the God overall. So it's not from them according to flesh is Christ, i.e., the God overall, it's Christ who is the God overall, but God overall there then is just a predicate because there's no there's not actually an article attached to it. I think if you're a biblical Unitarian, that's a great uh, a bit of ammunition for you to put in your in your belt. But the funny thing about it is is you're getting it from one of the church fathers. I would consider Abu Kura a church father. I guess because he comes right after John of Damascus. Uh, In the West, they wouldn't consider him a church father. At the very least, he's a very influential figure in Orthodox uh, theology. Bottom line, egalitarian Trinitarians, and here's the irony, and I I really want to drive this home. The big irony, egalitarian Trinitarians not only want to read the Bible as affirming their theology, they want to read the church fathers that way too. But the irony is, Tuggy seems to be able to figure out that the Bible is actually monarchical, just like Eastern Orthodox theology. And it's not egalitarian like Catholic and mainstream Protestant theology says it is, right? So he seems to kind of be able to see through that when you're talking about the Bible. But, I I don't know, maybe because he's more familiar with the Bible than he is with the Church Fathers. stands to reason he's a Protestant. Why would he care about the Church Fathers? For whatever reason, to this point in his career, he's just kind of been repeating these egalitarian interpretations, these traditional, really Roman Catholic sort of interpretations of the Church Fathers as though they're egalitarian. The irony here is that he rejects the content of the Catholic reading of the Fathers but he still accepts the accuracy of their reading of the Fathers, even though he can see through that when it comes to the Bible, right? So the tactics that they use when it comes to the Bible, as any follower of Tuggy will know, he talks about this a lot, 90% of the time it's obvious that the Bible is monarchical. It's obvious that the Father is the one God in the Bible. And there's this 10% of passages where it's kind of ambiguous and it could go either way, maybe they their hotly contested passages. And what egalitarians want to do is they will just focus your attention on this handful of ambiguous passages. Well, what Tuggy very rightly does is say, look, I'm not going to get sucked into this 10% of verses that are kind of ambiguous. I'm not going to get drawn into this quagmire where all I do all day long is try to argue that no, it really says this, no, it really says that. I'm going to zoom out, okay, back up, let's kind of get our noses out of the trees so we can see the forest. And the forest is monarchical. And he gets that, and he's very smart about that when it comes to the Bible. But he can't seem to see that, or he hasn't seen that, it doesn't look like he's figured that out yet that the exact same thing is happening with the Church Fathers. Because I guarantee you, if you know a little Greek, and if you read very carefully, if you go in the Church Fathers, not only have all Greek-speaking Christians held this kind of interpretation of the Church Fathers forever, as we saw with Photius and and everybody, but even most modern patristic scholars kind of eventually at some point admit that, well, yeah... There's the monarchy of the Father and the Church Fathers. And there's subordinationism, quote-unquote, in the Church Fathers. It's, it's not really the full-on egalitarian Roman Catholic sort of view that, that's happening in the Church Fathers. Even Roman Catholic patristic scholars will admit that. Okay, it, It's not really their ideal situation. But it, just the same way that egalitarians do with the Bible, they want to focus your attention on the couple of passages that are ambiguous and forget about the 90% that are unambiguous. Well, it's the same thing happening, but for some reason, Tuggy doesn't fall for it when it's with the Bible, but he falls for it hook, line, and sinker when they're talking about the Church Fathers. Uh, and so he buys this idea that the Catholic interpretation of the Church Fathers is accurate. Uh, he just doesn't believe in the content. Unfortunately for Tuggy and the Catholic Church, I have to say, the texts just don't support their readings. So the reading of the Church Fathers that Tuggy and the Catholic Church, I'm sure despite his best intentions I'm sure he has no intentions of being a a pawn of the Catholic Church, but he sort of is. But the texts just don't support the Catholic reading and, and Tuggy's reading. They just don't support it.
0: When the Trinity's podcast returns... Dr. Branson considers whether what he calls monarchical Trinitarianism is compatible with any of the models of the Trinity recently developed by analytic Christian philosophers.
1: We're going to get uh, away from the history and back a little bit into the logic and the more philosophical aspect of this. So I want to talk now about compatibility with analytic models of the Trinity. In other words, the question you might have is, would monarchical Trinitarianism be compatible with any kind of view that's of the Trinity that's been talked about in recent years? You might wonder that for uh, a number of reasons one, you might just kind of be interested in analytic theology, as both Tuggy and I are. But also, when we go through this, you're going to see at a little deeper level uh, some of the issues with Tuggy's definitions. Um, right now, I've just kind of been making the case that monarchical Trinitarianism looks like actually that's, you know, that is Trinitarianism. That, that's the view that's in the Church Fathers, uh, in all the Greek Fathers, and on up through the Greek tradition, uh, through the Great Schism and up uh, to the present day. From a historical point of view, you can't say that it's not Trinitarianism. But, you know, Tuggy's definitions try to sort of rule it out. But anyway, uh, I think that when we talk about this issue of whether it's compatible with analytic models, a number of things will kind of come out that are interesting in and of themselves and also will kind of reveal some deeper problems with his definitions. So, the first thing I'm going to talk about is social Trinitarianism. Would monarchical Trinitarianism be compatible with social Trinitarianism? I'm going to start out with what I'm just going to call toy social Trinitarianism. Toy social Trinitarianism, TST, this is a completely ridiculous and implausible way of formulating social Trinitarianism. So, I just want to point out I'm not, uh, although I, I don't adhere to social Trinitarianism, I don't think that, you know, social Trinitarianism is this stupid. It's just that this is going to make things very easy for us to to deal with. And that's why I call it toy. This is just kind of a pretend sort of play model of of social Trinitarianism. No one would really believe in anything this dumb, but it preserves the structural and logical sort of features of social Trinitarianism. So it just make it easier for us to kind of deal with. And then once we talk about this, I'll talk about how it generalizes. This is the stupid part. Suppose God is just a set, okay? So instead of being a community or whatever, God is a set. We'll call it set G. And this set G, God, has three elements, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we'll just represent them as F, S, and H. F is an element of G, S is an element of G, and H is an element of G. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each an element or a member of the set, which is God. That's a dumb view. Obviously, God's not a set. But you can see it it preserves the structure of social Trinitarianism. They're all parts of a whole. Again, I mentioned before, social Trinitarianism crucially relies on equivocation. Again, a lot of people focus on, you know, are the persons really persons in in the sense of centers of will and consciousness? That's really not the issue, though. The persons of the Trinity could be green beans for all. It it matters if each one individually is a green bean— then that's three green beans. And if you say, well, they're all part of this one larger green bean, then, you know, that's probably just four green beans if if there's a big one and then three little ones. Normally, when we think about parts and wholes, a lot of times we kind of think we're counting at different levels or something. In any case, there has to be some sort of distinction or equivocation. So you get one sense of the term God in which there's exactly one God, and that's set G. And then a different sense of God, or you could just say divine, in, in such that anything that's an element of G is God or is divine uh, in this secondary sense. right? So again, you have two senses of God, one in which there's only one God, and then another sense in which all the three persons can be called God. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can each be called God or divine because they're elements of God. And the question then is is toy social Trinitarianism compatible with the proposition that G equals F? Because that, after all, is the strong monarchy view. It's that the father and the one god are identical. So the one god in toy social Trinitarianism is set G, and the father in toy social Trinitarianism is the element F. So could you say that a set is identical to one of its elements? The question is going to be, is the element relation irreflexive? The answer is it just depends on how you choose to put your set theory together. But the interesting point is it's not a contradiction. So you could have uh, you could affirm toy social trinitarianism, and you could affirm the monarchy of the father too. Before I kind of generalize things, I'm going to talk about a particular version of Relative Identity Trinitarianism too. the model that's presented by Mike Ray and Jeff Brower. Mike Ray was my dissertation advisor for a while before I switched over and finished under Richard Cross. But anyway, he has a model of the Trinity, a version of the Trinity that he likes that relies on relative identity, but it's what he calls impure relative identity. Uh, So an impure relative identity model allows for the existence of classical identity which says that x and y are identical means they have to have all of their properties in common um, and so an identity is transitive so if the father is identical to god and the son's identical to god then the father son are identical to each other some relative identity models just say well let's get rid of classical identity and just have these kind of relative identity relations impure relative identity models say well we still have classical identity Uh, We just also have relative identity, and we can kind of use either one. And so for that reason, they are able to say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are classically distinct, not classically identical, but that they are all relatively identical to the divine nature. Um, So they count as one God because they would argue you count gods by this relative identity relation instead of by absolute identity. And on Ray and Brower's specific account, they have kind of a monarchy of the essence or monarchy of the divine nature type of view. They would say that the persons are all constituted by the divine nature. So in the same way that, uh, for example, a lump of clay constitutes a statue, but they would argue a lump of clay is not identical to the statue because the lump of clay, let's say, already existed on Monday but it was just a lump. It was just an amorphous blob. It wasn't shaped like a statue. Let's say we shape it into a statue on Tuesday. Well, the lump already existed before the statue did. The statue didn't come into existence until Tuesday. So they have different existence conditions. They exist at different times. And also being shaped like a statue is essential to the statue, um, but it's not essential to the lump of clay. The lump of clay can exist even if the statue, uh, even if it's not shaped like a statue. Whereas the statue wouldn't exist if it wasn't shaped like a statue. So they would argue that the lump and the statue are not identical, but they bear this constitution relation. One constitutes the other. And so similarly, what Ray and Broward do is they say there's this divine nature And it constitutes the Father, and it constitutes the Son, and it constitutes the Holy Spirit. But none of those are exactly identical. An analogy that they give to kind of try to show how something could constitute two different things. Imagine a lump of clay, and then it constitutes a statue. And then if we take that statue, and if it's shaped in the right way, and it has kind of the right thickness and support to it, you could set it in a temple and make it function as one of the pillars, right? So imagine a pillar that's kind of shaped as a statue of a person too, but also functions as a pillar. So the lump of clay constitutes the statue, the statue constitutes a pillar, but again, it might not be a pillar if the temple wasn't there around it, right? Then it wouldn't be a Pillar it would just be a statue again. These things are all there's kind of a sense in which there's one But there's kind of a sense in which there's three so you can see how they're egalitarian Trinitarians And that's just a rough outline of, of their view and how it works The question is suppose we so I've denoted you know father son and holy spirit as fs and h and the divine nature is d Well, is that compatible with a monarchical view that says the one God just is the father instead of the divine nature well, it would just be the question, can we say that F equals D? Can we say that the Father just is the divine nature? Um, and then that the Son and the Spirit are constituted by the Father or the divine nature. If we did, then all three would count on that model as God or divine in the sense they're constituted by the divine nature slash Father. And Mike Gray allows for a thing to count as constituting itself. So if, if you did have a model like that what would happen would be the father would be god or divine in an even more basic way right which might actually license referring to him as the one god or the only true god because he is just the divine nature whereas the son and spirit would be sort of the divine nature plus their intra-trinitarian relations their hypostatic qualities or idiomata as they call them so the the properties that they have Some people have argued, you know, there's actually some language in Athanasius and some other church fathers that does kind of look like that. I'm not convinced necessarily that that's actually going on in Athanasius, but it could be. Just like with toy social Trinitarianism, I mean, I wouldn't advocate this model. The question is just are they logically consistent? And it does look like it would give you kind of a weird view, just like toy social Trinitarianism combined with the strong monarchy view. It's a weird view But it is a logically consistent view. And what the key factors are going to be is that the compatibility, whether you can get a logically consistent view so that an analytic model of the Trinity is consistent with a strong monarchy view, it's just going to come down to a couple of questions. One would be, are all the same kind of crucial predicates true of the Father and the one God? Obviously, if you had things that were true about one that weren't true about the other, then they couldn't be absolutely identical. But in most cases, I mean, why would anyone really want something to be true about the Father but not about the one God? And that's typically not going to be the issue that people are going to deal with. The bigger issue is going to be whether the relation between the one God and the Father and also the one God and the Son and the Spirit is irreflexive. So if for some reason you had an irreflexive relation between the the one God and the three persons, then you wouldn't be able to say that God and the Father are identical and also bear that irreflexive relation to one another. That that would be a contradiction, right? But there's going to be a lot of models that will pass both of those tests. The element relation in toy social Trinitarianism, that's not irreflexive the part of relation arguably is not irreflexive if you admit the existence of improper parts, as they're called, which are a thing is its own improper part. Uh, Again, and if your relative identity relation, for example, if the constitution relation, certainly on Mike and Ray and Jeff Brower's view, constitution is not irreflexive. So as long as the relation that you have going on is not irreflexive, you're not going to get a contradiction. So a lot of models, a lot of analytic models of the Trinity actually will pass both of those tests, and so they'll be consistent with a strong monarchy view. It might make them weird. Anytime you combine this with social Trinitarianism, you're going to get probably a weird result because you're going to have the one God containing Himself and then also the Son and Spirit, and then within Himself, on this kind of deeper level, he's going to be containing himself again. That's something that happens actually in uh, non-well-founded set uh, theory. That's, that's kind of uh, standard. I mean, that is the standard um, sort of thing, or a standard result is you can get these sets like that. Actually, anytime you have a set contain itself, then of course that, so to speak, it has to kind of contain itself again um, at a deeper level of analysis. They talk about unfolding it, the issue is you have a, an infinite number of layers of unfolding of the set, so it's kind of a weird view. Um, but again, this has been studied very well by mathematicians, and there's no uh, there's apparently no contradiction to it. It's so not contradictory. It might be weird, but they are still in some cases consistent with relative identity. I think is even easier issue because um, you know there, there's not even any really intuitive pull to thinking that relative identity has to be irreflexive. And then, like I said, a lot of models will pass both tests, and uh, many that don't might do so for reasons that seem kind of trivial or or inessential. So so there's actually kind of a wider range of of analytic models of the Trinity that will be compatible with the strong monarchy view, a wider range than, than you might expect. Now, that answers our earlier question about whether or not Tuggy's definitions are mutually exclusive. Okay, so that's what I I think this is interesting for, and one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time going through it is it does show us this deeper result. He literally says explicitly that his definitions of Unitarian and Trinitarian are logical contraries. That is false, so that is just a, a mistake on his part the logic of it does not work out that way. And I think even he intuitively wants his definitions to be logically contrary. In other words, they should be such that you can't be both a Unitarian and a Trinitarian at the same time. And that's what it means to say that the definitions are logically contrary. In other words, they're mutually exclusive categories. The problem is that Tuggy, I I guess, must have thought that his definitions were constructed in that way, but they in fact are not. So given the way that he defines things, on his definitions, Unitarian and Trinitarian are not mutually exclusive categories. So again, take the toy social Trinitarianism with the monarchy view. That, on his definitions, counts as Unitarian because the one God is identical to the Father— But it also counts as Trinitarian because the one God contains the three persons. So it counts as both. Likewise, if you take Mike Ray and Jeff Brower's view and couple that with the strong monarchy view, and so you get this view where you've got God the Father is the divine nature. Those are identical, but then constitutes the Son and the Holy Spirit. That would count as Unitarian on Tuggy's definition because God is identical to the Father. Let's suppose that we just call the divine nature the one God. Uh, So you could, in any case, you could certainly just say the one God, the phrase the one God refers to the Father. But also there's a sense in which the one God contains or consists of the three persons. Tuggy does criticize uh, Mike Ray for not counting as Trinitarian, but um, I think there, there's at least there's ways to kind of easily uh, alter his views so you could get something where there's one God, um, that's just the Father, so it counts as Unitarian on Tuggy's definition, but then that one God constitutes the Son and the Spirit. It just it seems like you get something that, that would, uh, on that view too, be both Unitarian and Trinitarian. So I think that's counterintuitive. I think even Tuggy would not be happy about the fact that his his definitions are not logically contrary. So the categories of Unitarian and Trinitarian, on his view, are not mutually incompatible. Now, on my definitions, they are because I define it in terms of the number of divine persons. So if you've got three divine persons, you're Trinitarian, one divine person, you're Unitarian. So mine are logically contrary, Tuggy's are not. Here's the upshot: to kind of again go from these specific models that I just mentioned to just generalize any model that identifies the Father and the One God, but then also interprets this phrase from Tuggy's definitions in some sense contains or consists of. If you just interpret that as any relation that is not irreflexive, um, and then you just the the model posits that relation between the One God and the three persons. That's gonna count as both Trinitarian and Unitarian on Tuggy's definitions. And it, doesn't, it won't necessarily be logically inconsistent unless it's for some other unrelated reasons. The critical difference here, the critical issue between Tuggy's definitions and mine is that I'm defining and distinguishing Unitarianism and Trinitarianism on the basis of the number of divine persons that the model posits. If you've got two, three, four, five, 20 different divine persons, that's not Unitarian anymore. Um, if you've got three, that's Trinitarian and not Unitarian, right? Uh, and you can't do those at the same time. Those really are logically contrary. What Tuggy's trying to do is define things in terms of the relations posited between the one God and the divine person or persons that's what's um, problematic. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit more detail later on.
0: This week's thinking music is a track, the title of which someone has translated fall asleep by the flash old Kiev chant. It's from the album Chants of the Russian Orthodox church. Volume two. As always on the blog post for this episode, I've posted a link where you can listen to or download that entire track.